we went to play in London and somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I said, are you a blue blood? I said, no. He goes, well, what's this Royal Society? I said, we have Royal Crown Cola. It doesn't mean anything over there. Just high quality. <laughs> That's what I was, I was just picturing it as a high quality thing. And that's Sir, are you a blue blood? Yeah, exactly. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to the Hot Jazz Network podcast. My name is George Cole, and I'm your host. Today, we're interviewing or having a conversation with the one and only Don Neely. Let's take a ride out to Riverside Drive To a place before your mom and dad were alive We'll roll down the block Don, how are you? Oh, I'm reasonably well for an old guy. I don't think that you're that old. And in fact, I think you're eternally youthful, as is the music that you love and I love as well. I know that every superhero, and to me, you are that, you were... Um, the, the dean of this kind of music here on the West Coast. We're so lucky um, to have you and that you're still doing this. I just, every superhero has an origin story and I don't know enough about that. And so I, I thought we should start off maybe memorializing that. So so where were you born? Uh, born in Fresno, California, where all the trad jazz players come from, ironically. Is that true? A lot of them do. I mean, I've met lots of people in, into this kind of music from Fresno for some reason. It is America's music, and it is such a, that's such an interesting thing. What did your father do? My father had a various different jobs. Uh, I guess when I was born, he worked for the Southern Pacific Railway as a fireman, and uh, he also worked for the, I'll make a long story short, I won't tell you everything he did because it's uh, he ended up being a Coors beer distributor right when Coors really took off. Huh. And that's what he did. We weren't poor. We weren't real. We weren't real wealthy, but we did it like we had a mountain cabin. We had. We weren't hurting this, but we were. We were yeah, yeah, you had a life. And, and what was your father's name? Doug. Yeah, and your mother, what was her name? Janet. It seems somewhat derisive these days, but to me, it's it's a high honor when a housewife or a homemaker, was she that, or did she have a career of her own? She was a, a homemaker and a mother, and uh, I think that's, I agree with you, I think that is the ultimate calling, despite what they want to tell you nowadays. I, I know, all the, to all you gals out there, there the, being a boss babe is marketed and having a, your own career and that you don't need a man, and I, I think... Just saxophone and trumpet, it all goes to... Or the guitar and the violin, which I think is the greatest. But that, then again, that's just me, because I'm a guitar player. I think the guitar and the violin is just this match made in heaven of the, the tones of those two instruments. Yeah, or the timbre, or do you say timber or timbre? Timbre. Timbre, yeah, I've always thought that it's... She did have some outside work. When I was about five or six, she was a telephone operator in Hollister, where we lived. At that time, there was no dial on the phone, so... Pick it up and say, "Give me four notes." You tell them four yeah. notes. And uh, but I saw her actually sitting there in the little telephone office, working the board. And then she also worked for my father as uh, doing bookkeeping for a period of time. 
but ultimately she, uh, she just, um, looked after us in the house and she was very happy doing that. I think that's great. And was there music in the house? Did they play, did they play instruments? Were, were there no. fr- friends that came over and played the back porch co- or parlor kind of thing? No, I made all the music in the house. They made it on the radio, the hi-fi. They were fond of uh, of the current music from the 50s and early 60s. They, they dropped out when the Beatles came along, but they liked Elvis and those types of things. Did they like the the Perry Como, Frank Sinatra kind of stuff, the, the pop yeah. music of the day? Perry Como. Uh, my father was a big fan of Andy Williams. Uh, yeah, all of those singers at that time the crooners at the time which they were all singing the same songs too isn't that something when when, when a song was good everybody would have a crack at it <laughs> exactly right and they and you'd be surprised how many really obscure things that they revived can first you know maybe dean martin would do a show and he would sing some off the wall song from the 20s and uh obscure obscurity but i heard it and there it was that's so interesting. People think of Blue Moon as, for example, just pulling one song out of, out of the ether there as a 50s song, but it's not. It's like 1932 yeah. or something. And, I and the, that too. In fact, that song in particular was interesting because it was originally entitled My Man, Why Did He Leave Me Alone? And it was featured in a movie under that title. And they said, People are over the sob songs. We don't want, this is not 32 anymore. We want happy songs. We want songs that have moon and bloom and June. And <laughs> no wrote the lyric as a joke. And give me something snappy. I know it's funny when you think of the song, I, I love Frank Sinatra and I, I love the recording of Fly Me to the Moon. I just don't want to, personally, I, I just don't want to be the guy that sings Fly Me. Maybe to my own demise that I just don't want to sing the song because it's, um, it's been beaten to death. But I believe the original title of that song was In Other Words. But can't you just see Sinatra at a session saying, oh, let's do that. Uh, fly me to the moon thing. Quite a few songs have changed titles because of that. There's so many good anecdotes. I believe that that's a Jimmy Van Heusen song. Is that? Is that? I believe so, yeah. And he, named, he saw the story is he needed an Americanized name. And then as he saw a truck moving by outside the window and it said Van Heusen shirts and <laughs> and history what history was made in that day okay so you made the you made the music in the house where was the school system helping out was there band classes was there instruments was there a music store in town what's the story of how you got your hands on your first instrument my grandmother bought me a piano when i was uh, she wanted to get me a steinway grand of course but she had one and if we just my we didn't have room for it. She gave me a Baldwin acrosonic piano, and that was my start playing piano. So I just took piano lessons, and when I got into uh, sixth grade, I wanted to play the saxophone, but we couldn't afford the rent on a saxophone. Yeah. But we weren't quite that well off at that point. But um, we could afford a clarinet. She rented a clarinet for me and then ultimately bought it for me. But that turns out to be the best choice anyway. Uh, before you take up sax, it's best to play clarinet because sax players have a terrible time playing clarinet. So that uh, when I was uh, 11, and I was just totally, I took as many music courses as they could offer. I was in the orchestra, I played violin, I played cello, viola. And then I got in high school and they had 
individual instrument courses. I studied baritone horn, all these different instruments, and they would you sit in the practice room, which was really great, and you'd practice them all day long, or not all day long, during the period. <clears throat> and at the end, you get a lesson. Did, were there kindred spirits in your school or in your community? Were there young people that were also, it sounds to me like you're a true multi-instrumentalist in, in experiencing music from a bunch of different instruments. Were there, did you have peers that were the same, that were starting to develop a real love of music? My best friend in high school and I, I introduced him to the 20s music. And so he would come over and we would listen to it. And then I would go to his house and listen to Swan Lake play his grand piano. So there was that. But he was also, he was more into what was happening at the time. One of my early teachers who taught me, gave me clarinet lessons and piano lessons. He was a violinist. His uh, name was Raymond Cheek. And in Hollister, and I would go up and take lessons from him. And he had a collection of Victrolas, uh, mostly uh, cylinder machines. And so that's where I first saw those things. And he had a collection of musical instruments. And so he was very much into that era, but I don't, not so much the dance music. I saw the machines and I was intrigued by it. You asked me this question once, and now I'm going to turn it back on you because the being the dean of this type of music, you probably have a, a good answer to uh, what is ha hot jazz to you? What what codifies that or what is the real definition of that? Hot jazz is just jazz from the 20s, but it is, I'd say its uh, main characteristic is an insistent, you might say. It's very much on top of the beat, in your face. But it's also melodic and, and stays in the chord mostly. And as opposed, say, a lot of more modern jazz is way behind the beat. They don't start the solo till half the course is over. That type. <laughs> cool, cool, cool jazz, man. Let, let, let's be cool. Is now is there is there for, for example in my learning about vintage guitars, for example, Martin guitars, the true golden age. I, I thought, and I, I've spoken to so many people about this. The golden age of Martin guitars was 1930 to 1940, but you talk to the real experts, the the people that really know their stuff, they say, no, it's from 1933 to 1938. It's a very small window. I, I prefer to think of hot jazz and the different styles as, as a style rather than an era. But if we had to pinpoint an era, did would we say that it ended when the swing came into play? Or it's never really ended. But it's never ended. It's been re it was revived early on, but it's from I'd say roughly from because I, I think of like the earliest is ragtime jazz. I'd like to call it that, but of course, they would, no one calls it that except me. And that, I think ragtime is good. I think a lot of people familiar with that. But anyway, continue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's the, the hot jazz is developing with King Oliver in the early twenties. King Oliver, that really pounding, like I said. In your face, in consistent, yeah. And uh, as time progresses, it becomes a little more mellow. You know, big spider bags less hot. It's he's hot, but in a different way. It's so mu so musical. When somebody says that they don't like jazz or that jazz is just not their thing, I place I inevitably play them some big spider back, and they say, "Oh, I like that. Right. It's so melodic and just so beautiful the sound that he's getting." But that is really not 
what you were talking about, the insistent driving on top of the beat thing. That's a, a, a softer variant of it. Right. And slowly, slowly starting in the late 20s, uh, swing feel starts coming in. And so it's still hot. And I'd say swing is still hot, but it's now it's just a, just a different feeling. That's all when it gets uh, really going in the 30s. It was sw- with swing. Would we we call it possibly a greater displacement of the beat, more of a um, syncopated? Syncopated. I realize that jazz is syncopated, but smoothed the air- out, smoothed out, smoothed out. Yeah. Take ragtime and then you flatten it out and smooth it out. You got swing, right? Kind of simplified idea, but it's all about the style. They're all the commonality in all of this is it's all improvised music, so. Depends on how you play it, what you want to call it. But it's improvised from a chart and an arrangement. Not well, always. Not necessarily. I, can, I don't need a chart to play a, a song. Yes, so, but if... Those with, guys with, didn't read very well. A lot of those guys didn't read, so they played by ear. The music that I, that I specialize in, the, the music of Django Reinhardt and Stephen Grappelli, the Hot Club of France, mm-hmm. um, you, you never see music on stage or anything. But I do believe that if we turn the Royal Society Jazz Orchestra loose without, or or any band, even a larger band, 18 guys, and there's no music, you can have some chaos there. Oh, if you're talking about that, I, mean, I was just talking about, in general, I guess, not the 10-piece orchestra. Sure, you have to have an arrangement. And then they, uh, you know, so at least I've had people say, well, that's not jazz. I said, right. I said, when you're playing the head of a song, that's not jazz. That's a memorized head. It's really nothing until you start to improvise on it, and it's jazz. So they, some people can't seem to make that division in their mind. So they hear Paul Whiteman say, well, that's not jazz. Wait a minute. There's Big Spider-Bag playing a jazz solo, so now what is it? You know? So it's a, it's a mixture between the folks' jazz and small doses. And, and the smaller the ensemble, the the greater likelihood of, of everything not being charted. It's more of a head arrangement. And then right. as we get into like a, a full-sized um, jazz band, 8, 10, 12 pieces, it's, there's going to be charts. There's going to be arrangements. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I learned a phrase from you just when I was thinking about changing some of the charts and, and, and changing the key. And, and you said doctored. And I've since found that is a, 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 a something a phrase that everybody uses when they're referring to, to charge. You're going to doctor them. You're going oh, you're yeah. you're to change it. You're going to. When I spoke to Vince Giordano at Birdland in New York just a couple months ago, he was saying how all his almost all his arrangements are doctored. A lot of the singers, the vocalists were were male, were, were higher pitched tenor, and so if you're a baritone, you're going to doctor it that way. You're going to change the key, and you might elongate the um, the arrangement or or cut it down or cut certain things out yeah before thought, the before the computer that's that's a, exactly <laughs> all the time in fact if you look back in the old days you see some strange you know very awkward things that they did um for instance uh, fred waring has an arrangement of i think wobbly walk and you go through the first part here, or and then you have to jump over to this page over there. It's on the left, and you look over here, and there's arrows and everything else. Very uh, unless you're rehearsing in the band, you're not going to play that. Uh, you're not going to sight read that. But I uh, had a system where I put X's and arrows and all that sort of thing, and, and uh, not as good as putting it through a computer, of course. And it makes it 
more foolproof, but that's, they all did it. You know, it's interesting as I've learned about the jazz age or then after the big band era and ultimately the, the demise. I mean, big bands still exist. Bands like yours still exist. Thank goodness. But as the big bands faded out after World War II, so you've got all these professional musicians, you've got copyists, you've got boy singers, you've got girl singers, you've got arrangers. It's an expensive proposition. Then somebody figured out in their wisdom that you could um, get a couple hillbillies in a radio station, which their earliest recording studios were a radio station, and you and these people didn't know anything about publishing. You get get them to sing a song, press it up, sell a million copies. You know, it's not the same as the world of the professional musicians and the copyist and the. There's so much to be said for the um, for the big band area. Do you make a distinction between the jazz age proper and then the swing era and the the Benny Goodmans and the Glenn Millers and stuff, or is it all of a piece to you? I think if, when you say the big band era, you're referring to 35 and on, even though Paul Whiteman had the biggest of the big bands, 24 pieces. When the big band actually started, I think in 1913 or 14, when Art Hickman put saxophones and trumpets with its group in San Francisco. It actually was born, wow. born in San Francisco, that uh, basic configuration. So that's the genesis of it. Now, it is a big band. No, that, that's really true. I mean, people oftentimes, the, the books I've read, I have a lot of books on this stuff. I would defer to you at any time, of course. But it's like when Benny Goodman at the Palomar Ballroom, 1935, apparently the kids stopped, the dancers stopped dancing and started watching and listening. And he became a star. And then... Thanks to the ra- radio. Thanks to the radio. And okay. then everybody else had a similar kind of band. And the, at the end of that, or... In the early 40s, Frank Sinatra, the boy singer era, singing with the big band. And I noticed in my own musical journey and with the arrangements that the the vocal wouldn't come in until a couple minutes in the song. There'd be the vocal refrain and there'd be a brief vocal in the middle, uh, a little connector, modulation, what have you. But after Frank Sinatra and the the boy singer era took over, Bing Bing Crosby. Do you have a, a favorite song? This is a crazy question, but do you, do you have a favorite song or arrangement that you like? I, I came up with one yesterday. I was listening to the Boardwalk Empire um, soundtrack, and they had they had a rock singer, uh, a rock and roll singer, probably from the seventies, early eighties, named Marshall Crenshaw, and this is with um, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks, and they did a correct version, for lack of a better word of the um, Bing Crosby. I think of it as a Bing Crosby song. Maybe you could tell me who the band is on the recording, but out of nowhere. I think Johnny Green. I think. But that 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 has got to be one of it's the most- one of my favorites. Yeah, sure. Oh, you like that one as well? Yeah. But it's I can't just, imagine, I can't imagine a rock singer from the 70s doing it justice. You know who I like that that is um, modern day? You mentioned his name to me, and I've also, in my own internet research, and I don't mean looking at naughty pictures, Matt Tolentino does a a nice, and there's a live version of him doing it. He he sings it so well, and his band is so tight. So, Matt, if you're out there, kudos and congratulations on your ability to deliver that song. But no, the song from the, it's interesting, On the Boardwalk Empire, I don't, have you seen this, this show? It wrapped, um, yeah, a few I, years I, ago. Some of it, not much. Though. 
But they so what they do on the soundtrack, and possibly for commercial reasons, they have people like Elvis Costello singing It Had to Be You. And he does that wonderful verse at the beginning of the song, which is pretty much lost for a lot of people. People do not do the verse at the beginning of the song, which also you can put in the middle of the song. They'll have Patti Smith, Elvis Costello, the guy from the New York Dolls, David Johansson. They have all these modern day people, if you will, doing these songs. And it's neat in a way because you would never expect them to do it. And I know that they don't sound like Bing, but then again, who does sound like young Bing? But it's neat to see. It keeps a lot of other, there's a lot of other singers who sound a lot more like Bing than he does, or they do. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I don't think they were going for that. It, it's just in an interesting way. It keeps the music um, al- alive in, in a different way, having more mo- modern people from different genres. And there's some people on there on the soundtrack there you you can listen to this on spotify kids and i don't work for on for spotify but if you listen to spot on spotify to the boardwalk empire soundtrack there there's some interesting things some wonderful singers and then some of the people that probably shouldn't be singing that music but it's interesting because it it turns people on to it in a sense i would say from my perspective the only good thing about it is the fact that perhaps their fans will hear the music and then want to listen to the original. It's like I did with That's say, right. It's like I did with Switched on Bach. Switched on Bach came out in the early 70s, I think. And uh, I mean, when, what, Wendy Carlos? Yeah, or it really became interested in Bach because of that. And I actually started listening to the real thing. Which well, there you go. Heard. So from that standpoint, but from the other standpoint, I personally don't want to listen to them do that. So that's me. Well, it's been interesting for me. You know, it's just, um, I always liked the music of the 20s and 30s. I like like this stuff. But growing up with my parents had pretty, uh, what would we say, Catholic tastes in music. You know, there was the Jerry Vale, the Perry Como, the Dean Martin, the Frank Sinatra, the Peggy Lee, and, um, I mean, and the, the, the Mills Brothers. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And the Mills Brothers. And I, I did get some good stuff and Louis Prima and Keeley Smith. And so you can imagine when I got the call years later, maybe 10, 12 years ago to play with Keeley Smith for her two week run at, at the Raz room there, I was probably going to go and buy tickets anyway. So I got to play with her and meet her. I can't say I really got to know her because she always had um, as wonderful as she was. And she had a beautiful voice, particularly in, in her prime when I played with her, she was in her 80s, and she was hilarious, but she always kept the showbiz facade on. I guess she had to be a, a tough gal being around a bunch of guys all the time. So she she had this kind of force field around her that I um, didn't really get to know her or anything like that. But uh, That's often the case. <laughs> that's often the case. And sometimes people develop this showbiz persona, and it, it almost takes over their real... Um, their, their real persona. And so I want to ask you about the Royal Society Jazz Orchestra. Is that, would we say 1975 is the year when you uh, started yeah. that? started it in, I think, September of 75. Okay. And you, you came up with that name on your own because the name is, it, in addition to being a mouthful, it really says a lot. The Royal Society, so a society, you're referencing society music, jazz orchestra it's like it's all in the name there was that the idea or it just or you didn't put that much thought into it oh i put a lot of thought into it i (laughs) wish now i would not have named it that at all really Uh, at the time long 
name monikers for places for, who are popular, like the Great American Music Hall is a good example. And uh, there was lot, lots of long, or, or Redenbacher's old-timey whatever. You know, I was saying these long, like their names from the, like the late uh, 19th century almost. So I was looking for something that, like you say, described it. And I started looking through the Brian Rust book of, of 78s, which gives you the names of every band that ever existed. And I, I see a Royal this and Royal that, Society this and that. And, this, <laughs> no. and uh, so I came up with Royal Society Dance Orchestra, what I originally called it. And, um, and then we, uh, we started becoming more familiar with the jazz part of it. And we started playing with the jazz club. So I changed it to jazz orchestra because of that. We started emphasizing lots of jazz arrangements that Duke Ellington and Fletcher Anderson, et cetera. Well, uh, I think it's a wonderful name and you have so many fans here in the Bay area. Let me tell you a little antidote. <laughs> Please. Uh, we went to play in London and somebody comes up to me and says, oh, so this, are you a blue blood? I said, no. He goes, well, what's this Royal Society? I said, we have Royal Crown Cola. It doesn't mean anything over there. It just mean high quality. <laughs> that's what I was, I was just picturing it as a high quality thing. And that's, Sir, are you a blue blood? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's very funny. So the band was invited to play in, in, in London? Yeah, we played in London at the and also at the Edinburgh Festival in 19... 19- Forty years, right? Nineteen eighty-two. This is fantastic. I did not know that. So you got invited to go over there and play. It's just I don't have the entire history of the Royal Society Jazz Orchestra in front of me, so I was unaware of that fact. But that's. Would you say that the eighties there was a peak of interest in this type of music, or it, I know it continues to this day, and there's a lot of young people that are really getting into music of the twenties and thirties, and I think that's fantastic. Would you say that the 80s was a, was also a fertile period for that kind of music and appreciation of that kind of music? Because of me and Vince Giordano and, of course, the uh, Pasadena Roof Orchestra, I'd say that that when we came on the scene in San Francisco, that we were quite an influence and got a lot of notoriety, and so did Vince in New York. But I would say it's bigger now than it was then. Okay, I, that's what my take is on it. And it's funny, like when I was trying to put together my own orchestra here, which I will get back to, I'm sure it's at some point, the, a lot of musicians, they didn't really, um, to, to use a funny word, they didn't really grok it. They didn't really understand how, how wonderful and how special this music is. And I know that there's a lot of young guys and gals in New York playing this kind of music and other metropolitan areas. It's, I guess you have to be, have to be hip to it. And I just didn't want. I think you have to be introduced to it. When I started my band, introduced to it. Yes, I didn't. didn't, Wasn't looking for jazz players. I looked. I was like, I got classical players, and when they once they started playing it, they really enjoyed it. And then they put in the time to listen to it. But they were we were all very young, of course, and impressionable, and you learn faster. Maybe not so jaded, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure that has. It has a lot to do with it as well, but they all, we all we would rehearse and listen to the records when we did some to try to emulate that. 
That sounds so fun. I wish I could have a time machine and go back there. And that's interesting, your use of the word jaded. I experience that a lot with some of the musicians that I meet around here. Not you, not some of the greater musicians, but some of the people are so jaded, I almost feel that they've played too many gigs. I think a lot of the, the jazz slang, chicks, cats, I've got my axe, I'm going to go to the woodshed and practice. I, I think that a, a lot of this stuff still lives on. And um, it's funny. What have you been doing, man? Oh, I've been shedding. <laughs> I've, been, I've been working on my chops, man. I've been shedding. I've been, <laughs> it's still, I, I'm guilty of using the word chick. I don't use the word cats so much, but I know a lot of people in, in, enjoy using that word. So with the Royal Society Jazz Orchestra, started in 1975, the 80s, it was very popular, invitations to um, London and Edinburgh to play, and you've managed to keep this band together the, the whole time. Did the band ever, did you ever just say, I'm throwing the towel in, or have you, has it been pretty much consistent that you've been able to keep it going? I tried to sh- throw the towel in numerous times, but <laughs> no one allows me to do it. Here I am, still doing it. But now you're doing a public service. When I see the faces, and I, I've been to see the band a few times, and I'm looking forward to go see you in the very near future, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But when I see the faces on the people when you're playing this music, it's it's such a gift to the people. To I mean, hearing it on the record is, is one thing, and the records are amazing, and Radio Dismuke put in a plug for them. That's amazing. But to hear it live is it's such a special treat, and it's it's so meaningful to people. When you guys played out at um, Blackhawk, I believe it was, I saw the face. I was scanning the audience, and just to, and it's really special. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. It's we as a musician, you forget the power we have over people. It's a very therapeutic. I remember the first time I saw a big band perform, and I was astounded. And I wish I could. We experienced that first time I saw it, of course you can't, but it really is, people are amazed. Particularly those of us that, that grew up with rock and roll and, and so forth, and, and thinking of, of the Beatles, those guys are old enough, Paul McCartney's old enough, They were him and his parents were standing around the piano singing when the Red Red Robin goes bombing along. So I hear some of that in their music, and also the, the producer, um, George Martin, my introduction to... 20s music or to, to jazz, hot jazz. It's filtered through what I grew up with, which is the Beatles and that sort of thing. Not so much Led Zeppelin, folks, but it's interesting. Everybody's musical journey in, in life is different, particularly if you're a musician. But for some reason, hot jazz just it just really resonates with me. And it's just the, the most joyous, happy music. And I know that there's part of it that's dance music. But it's also a concert of that music. Like when I've seen you in concert, if even people sitting in a chair, the tendency is to want to get up and, and move. So it works in a variety of ways. It's, it's very captivating music. And I know a lot of people are really into the the costume part of it. And to me, there's nothing wrong with that. They like dressing up. They like going out and not so much living in the past, but maybe playing in the past. I know you have some fun engagements coming up. Could you tell us a little bit about... Um, the, the the Gatsby gig that you have coming up? Uh, the Gatsby gig, I think we're, I don't know if we played it 40 times, we're pretty close. Wow. It's the best, I consider it to be the best event that we play every year. And um, it's on the uh, grounds of the Dunsmuir House in Oakland. And it's a wonderful house. I saw it on a horror film, actually. I forget what horror film is, but it's in a number of uh, 
movies. They have a, a great lawn and people park their, their antique automobiles out on the lawn and they set up these vintage picnic. People get together a vintage picnic set and they come and they dress in the funny style and uh, there's a dance floor and a bandstand and my, my band plays for dancing. It's really a rarefied experience that one should at least go to at least one. We're planning on going. Me and the missus, we're gonna. We want to go to this event. I don't necessarily have the um, proper twenties attire, but I think that people might. It's easy for men. men just put on a suit. Not so easy for women, but it's easy for men. Why? Why is it easy for men? Just put on a suit and some spectator you have a, shoes. You have a blue blazer. Blue blazer, yes. You got a white shirt. Yes. You got a bow tie. Yes, I do. You got some white pants or khaki pants. Yes, um, I do. Then get the two-tone shoes. You're all good to go. A straw hat, you're done. I'm looking into getting a straw boater. I almost bought one in New York, but I wasn't prepared to spend $400 on a straw boater, even though it was beautiful and made in Italy. It was fantastic. I think I'll probably go to one of the local stores around here. Or, or... I saw one online for $45 from Italy that was I thought was, you have to look for the thickness. You don't want the little, you don't want, they're selling these are, one layer thick, they're, they're no good. You got to get have at least two layers. I'll, I'll see the link. I'll send it to you. No, I plan on getting a straw boater, and we definitely plan on going to this event. I hope it's a beautiful day, and um, we'll we'll put some links to the Royal Society Jazz Orchestra, and we'll, we'll put her website and also all the information about this great event. Is it's a daytime event, is it not? Yeah, it starts uh, around noon. Goes to six o'clock, something like that. And you'll be playing a, a few sets of music in there. We play four sets of music. They also have a floor show with the Art Deco Ball, Art Deco Bells, I should say. And they do a. They're going to dance to the Varsity Drag this year. The Varsity Drag will be. Will people be drinking absinthe? Oh, I'm sure some people will be. <laughs> What do you think is some of the younger bands that are they're playing this out? Lots of people like Matt Tolentino. Oh, Matt. their music. Oh, yeah. Matt is a wunderkind and a multi-instrumentalist. A wonderful accordionist. Yes. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's really great. And he has more than one band. So I don't know how he does it. But... And then, of course, Alex Mendham is yes. the, the up-and-coming star. You know, He's made a lot of progress in his band is sounding very good. And then there's Max Rabb from Germany. I, I like him very much, but he'll do like a Madonna song or a Britney Spears song. He'll do all kinds of modern music. In, he's always got a twinkle in his eye, like he's having an, uh, way too much fun with it. Yeah, people really like his act. I think it uh, wears a little thin on me. But um, if you go back... 50 years ago, Gary Lawrence and his sizzling syncopators were taking modern songs and making our 20s arrangements of them. And uh, did quite a good job, actually, to check that out. They're all on YouTube. Then there's also, who else? There's the Portania Jazz Band, South America. They've been going for 50 years. Argentina, from Argentina. Oh, Wow. And there's a few others I can't think of. There was the Prague Syncopators, the Bratislava Hot Jazz Orchestra. So there's more than you think out there. No, you you sent me a bunch of links, and I, I was I remember now it was a few months ago, but I was pretty much blown away 
by all the people playing this kind of music, and, and they, they all have their own variant of mm. it. It's not like everybody's trying to do the same thing. Mm. I think all these styles of music deserve to live. I think that the music that, that I love very much is the, the you know, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli style of music, or doo-wop. You don't see too many doo-wop bands. I think it's a little too difficult to do. You have to have four really good singers. I, I love barbershop quartets. I, I think it all deserves to live. Um, the jazz band, is it's, it, it comes with a certain built-in difficulty when you have to gather all these people and they all have to be good and you have to have the right arrangements. And there's a lot to it. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything because you um, started this long ago and hopefully you're going to continue it for many years into the future. You have a smaller group, don't you? A trio, quartet? Yeah, we're playing a warm-up for the Gadsby on the 7th at Stuckey's Club Modern. Oh, I love Stuckey's. That's a great club. I get to play there every now and then. Whoever is listening, if you go to Stuckey's and see Don, and I highly recommend this, do not have more than one of their cocktails because it will lay you out cold. Those things are so strong. If you have a martini, you might be wanting to take an Uber home I'll, I'll tell you that but anyway don thank you so much for the conversation best of luck to you in the future and um we'll see you down the road thank you very much uh, george it's been a pleasure and uh look forward to seeing you again This is George Cole with our show wrap-up. I'd like to thank Source Network Production with executive producer Mark Miller and production support from Pokey Huang. Also on this send, tech support from Sheila Swift. Signing off, and we'll see you next time on the Hot Jazz Network podcast. Hot Jazz Network.